And then we heard, obviously, nothing about it until 2019. So we're getting a lot of information at the very end of the case. You hear the big number, oh, they've settled for $8.6 million. Mr. Glenn, for his efforts, received about $1.72 million as a relator fee. So there's some incentive, obviously, for insider threats or whistleblowers to either, unfortunately, create these problems or to report them. Welcome to GovCon Live. I'm your host, John Williams, and this is the third episode of XREL Radio, our multi-part series on the False Claims Act, which will include commentary on potential pitfalls for your company, enforcement issues, and emerging trends in this important area of the law. Today, we're talking to Matt Feinberg, partner in our litigation and dispute resolution group, and Dave Schaefer, who's from our business and corporate group. Matt is the team lead for our False Claims Act team, and Dave is the team lead for our cybersecurity and data privacy team. We're changing up the order of the episodes a little bit to bring you some late-breaking news on a recent Cybersecurity False Claims Act case. Matt and Dave think this case may have far-reaching implications for contractors subject to federal cybersecurity requirements. We'll be back next episode with Michelle Litikin to discuss False Claims Act implications for the healthcare industry. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and we hope to have some fun, too. But we're not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply. And the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. All right, disclaimer over. Let's get started. All right, welcome, guys. Matt, Dave, great to have you here. Great to be back. Thanks for having us. Matt, this is your first time on Player Mazza podcast. It is. I'm usually the man behind the curtain for these, but glad to be here. We're opening the curtain and letting Matt join us. Matt, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? You're a partner with our litigation group, and you're also the team lead for our False Claims Act team. That's right. Don't know what else I'm supposed to say to that. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. Nothing. uh, (laughs) Right there. (laughs) Matt Feinberg, everybody. (laughs) Just the name Matt is all you need to know, frankly, around here. Matt is our litigation guru, False Claims Act expert, and Dave Schaefer with our cyber team, our corporate group. You've actually did a podcast earlier in this series on cybersecurity and the way that it's intersecting with the False Claims Act. You want to give us a little bit uh, in the Wayback Machine on that first podcast? Yeah, the first podcast was great with Cy Alba and yourself, John, and talking about some some recent cases that we thought were were, were some of the front runners and, and we'll get into why that might not be the case in a little bit. And it was a great time to go through some of the cybersecurity requirements that are really impacting government contractors right now. Of course, we had the entire cybersecurity series previously related to cybersecurity on a more general scale related to M&A or labor employment, insider threats, and things along those those lines. And and frankly, I, I thought I got out of all my podcasting responsibilities then. Just when you think you're out. And they pull you back in. And here <laughs> I am. That's how it works at the XRL radio. <laughs> yeah. So Yeah, cybersecurity, it's becoming more and more of an issue. It's becoming more and more of a hot topic. People are getting a lot more awareness about it. I think that, you know, some of the things that Matt's going to touch on are really out in the marketplace, really out in the media that's going to bring to light potentially a lot more FCA claims as people start looking around and 
you know, employees and disgruntled employees start looking for potential paydays and things along those lines. So I anticipate that this won't be the last time that we, we talk about these cases and, and their practical implications. So yeah, that's right. Cybersecurity, definitely a hot topic. We have a cyber team. Dave's the team lead for that team. And I'm on that team as well. We're counseling clients, I think, with increasing frequency on cyber requirements that are in their contracts. They need to flow down to their subcontractors that the government is imposing on them. This comes up for Dave a lot in due diligence for M&A transactions. For me, there's a bid protest aspect of this I think is going to grow. But we're here today to talk about False Claims Act. And Matt, maybe you could set the stage for us a little bit just generally on False Claims Act so then we can get into how it is that cyber is becoming, as Dave said, more of a focus in the False Claims Act space. Sure. So the False Claims Act is basically the government's best effort, essentially, to curb fraud in government contracting and government contracting adjacent industries. So a false claim, for purposes of the False Claims Act, is when a company, usually a government contractor, makes a request to the government for money or for property, for instance, invoices the government for work that wasn't done or for services or or products that were not provided. The other way that you can violate the False Claims Act is by making a certification or a statement to the government in connection with a request for payment. So even if the request for payment is accurate on its face, you might violate the False Claims Act by making another material misrepresentation in making that claim. So it could be that your request for payment's accurate, but you're certifying underlying that request that you're complying with all the terms in your contract, including cybersecurity clauses and NIST manuals that you may have no idea if you're not reading carefully through the fine print that they were actually part of your contract. Is that what happened in this case that Dave alluded to? Generally, yes, but there's a bit of a spin on the certification that Dave will talk about in a little bit. But generally, yes, that that's what's happening here. No one is alleging that Cisco charged the government for services it didn't provide. They're worried about the certifications and the cybersecurity implications of those certifications. And you said Cisco. So is that the, let's talk a little bit about the case then. Is that who the defendant is in the case? Right. So the case we're talking about is something that has come up since the original cybersecurity podcast we did a few weeks ago. It's called United States XREL James Glenn versus Cisco Systems Incorporated. And we'll just refer to it as Cisco here. David had touched on this a little bit earlier. We were talking about the Aerojet case at the on the first podcast. Right. That was a hot topic. That was a big focus because that was at the time, I think we thought the first False Claims Act case related to cyber issues, right? Right. And that was sort of what it was known for. And there are a number of articles out by scholars saying this is the first case. But the interesting thing about False Claims Act cases is they're filed under seal originally. So you may not know about these cases for months, often years after they've been filed. So in this case, this case was actually filed in 2011. So it's been sitting for eight years. Why do they get filed under seal? Why is there such a long gestation period? Well, there are a few reasons. The main one is that the implications of fraud against the government are extreme. So it could compromise your ability to perform a government contract in the future. It could really damage your ability to win government contracts. And so there's a certain protection built in to make sure that we're not just talking about any claim against the contractor, but rather the claims that can 
survive a certain level of scrutiny, things that are clear enough and truly indicate fraud before they become public. Okay, that makes sense. So that can take a while, I guess. And there's an investigative aspect of this that, the, as you were saying, I think, Matt, this law, I understand, provides an incentive for private persons to essentially help the government investigate and meet out fraud on contracts. So there's, a, I'm sure, a process that is built into that for investigation. That's right. So there are generally two main ways that a False Claims Act case can be brought. One could be by the government directly. That typically would happen after the government has either performed an audit or come to the realization that something is amiss in a government contract. And they have regulatory powers to investigate and to audit their government contracts and then to file a False Claims Act case if necessary. The other more frequent way that a False Claims Act comes to be is for an individual, usually a whistleblower, but sometimes it's a competitor of a government contractor. They become what's called a relator, and they file a False Claims Act case under seal in a U.S. district court. And instead of serving and giving notice to the actual contractor, they serve the government and they submit with it a very comprehensive memorandum that explains exactly why they believe that the False Claims Act violation has occurred. And then there's a, the government investigates for essentially as long as it takes to determine whether a False Claims Act violation has occurred. And although there are timelines within which the government has to make a decision, they can just ask the court for more time and it's almost always granted. So they can drag on. Right. So in this case, the Cisco case in particular, the relator filed his claim in 2011 or perhaps 2012. And years upon years upon years upon years later, the government still hadn't intervened. And then we found out about this case when the government finally intervened solely for the purpose of settlement. And so it took eight years to get to that point, and the government still hadn't made its decision about whether to proceed or whether to allow the relator to proceed on its own. So that's sort of the the general background. There's a lot of information in our other podcasts about the False Claims Act, so I would encourage you to listen to those as well. For sure. And speaking of that other podcast, Dave, I know we did talk about the Aerojet case a lot. Was that also a relator that started that case? It was. So, And this is, if I'm remembering right, to your point... It's the disgruntled employee or former employee that a lot of times can start these types of cases. Yeah, right? and that's what it was in Aerojet. It was a former employee who had, very similar to this, the Cisco case, had raised these issues with management, had brought these issues to light, You know, were dismissed, were looked down upon, and then ultimately terminated. And then, of course, they come back with a claim. And what was interesting, to Matt's point, you, we don't know how many of these are actually out there because they're filed under seal. but there's always a lot of disgruntled employees. And the issues you were alluding to that the former employee cited was compliance with cyber requirements. And I think in particular, it was 800-171 that had been mentioned in, in Aerojet. What kind of issues specifically are we dealing with in the Cisco case? Well, in the Cisco case, it's actually pretty interesting in the sense that we're a little bit in the dark because we don't have a final settlement agreement or a final opinion from the court that really sets forth the precise nuances of what we're talking about. But we do have the claim, the initial filing, which really sets forth and is pretty illuminating with regards to how a plaintiff's attorney or a relator is really looking at a lot of these things. And that's right now, the work that Cisco was doing was cloud-based. It was facilitating surveillance. It was 
Pretty interesting stuff, but it really interconnected with federal information systems, and it operated kind of hand-in-hand with those systems. And so what that does is that actually brings in a separate NIST publication, whereas the Aerojet case is really about the 800-171 special publication, which has its own set of controls and, and, and regulations, and that's about, I'm going to say, 200, 250 pages of controls. The 853, which is the Federal Information Processing Standards, kind of the FIPS, that actually has about 450 pages. I mean, it is far more extensive because the intent of it was to apply to federal agencies and the federal government itself. So it's really a requirement of the federal agency to comply with 853, and therefore it is their obligation to flow that to a contractor, and they would not give a government contractor a contract if that government contractor were not also compliant with the 853. And therefore it's a lot more voluminous, it's a lot more difficult and stringent to comply with, and it has a lot of the force of law with it because it's really a FISMA document. It's really got some historical backing to it, and so the compliance is really there. And one of the issues that comes up in this is that it's not necessarily something that has to be explicitly called out in RFP. It's it's one of those kind of requirements that as a government contractor bidding on a contract that deals with cloud-based service for use by the federal government, it's it would likely be referenced, but it's almost implied. Of course, you have to comply with this. Of course, you have to comply with something so that the government can then also be in compliance. So it's a different, what I would call if I were a relator, a different avenue of attack, a different approach that somebody has taken where they've found a little nugget and they've said, this is actually a great way to get into and make a legitimate claim. And at least in some extent, it seems to have been successful. Because it's settled. Because it's settled. But we don't know the terms of the settlement, or do we? We know the amount of the settlement is $8.6 million, but the government, the federal government at least, did not make an announcement or a press release related to the settlement. So we're largely relying on what was in the complaint, which is unsealed at the time of settlement. And so inherently, that complaint is written from a plaintiff's perspective or a relator's perspective. So you have to take a bit of what's in the complaint with a grain of salt. But generally speaking, what a settlement tells you is that the plaintiff had enough to scare a defendant into settlement. Now, in this case, maybe they just wanted to pay their defense costs and get out of it. That we just can't know. But there was enough of a risk to encourage a settlement and certainly not an admission that Cisco thought it had done wrong. In fact, Cisco did make an announcement that it had been unable to identify any actual breach of its system. And I'll go into the system in a a little bit just to explain exactly what happened. But we just know the terms of the settlement and what the allegations and the underlying relator complaint were. Makes sense. But it feels like an educated guess that Cisco, you wouldn't think that any company would pay nine million bucks just to make something go away. They had to probably perceive some level of exposure. So why don't you get into the details a little bit? Like, why do we think they felt some level of exposure? So Cisco developed a video surveillance system in the early 2009-2010 range. And it was, as David mentioned, a cloud-based system, which allowed for centralized review and monitoring of surveillance systems in airports, the Pentagon, all four branches of the military. Department of Homeland Security, Secret Service. So basically, these agencies and various state agencies as well 
were centralizing their surveillance of their buildings into either one or two or three locations. And it would allow them to sort of centralize their staff. They didn't need security officers monitoring video surveillance at every office location because they could do it through the cloud, essentially. And James Glenn, who's the relator in this case, was working for one of Cisco's affiliates in Denmark. And he identified a flaw in the system that allowed, in the terms of the complaint, anyone with a moderate understanding of computer systems to access the system and make material changes to the securities that were in place there. For instance, they might be able to lock and unlock security doors. They could access the entire safety feed in a given room or a given area, and they could delete portions of video surveillance. So for instance, the allegation and sort of an implication, because again, Cisco said this didn't happen, someone could potentially access an airport surveillance system and then delete security system of someone gaining access to the building for you know, nefarious purposes. So, I mean, this really sounds like the prototypical circumstances for why the government is so focused on cybersecurity right. requirements that we need to close off these avenues directly through the big companies like Cisco, but also lower down on the supply chain that folks could get in and erase security records or lock exactly. and unlock doors. I mean, that's exactly why the government's so focused on this right. area. And so, Mr. Glenn actually reported this internally through Cisco's system of internal reporting. So they have a checks and balances to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. He makes this report, the allegation that he gives a comprehensive explanation for why this is an issue, and Cisco ignores it. Shortly thereafter, Mr. Glenn is terminated by his Denmark-based employer, allegedly for as a layoff based on budgetary issues. But there's a certain. So, is there a whistleblower angle to this complaint too, uh, from absolutely. protection uh, issue, retaliation? Uh, yes, but under the circumstances, it doesn't apply because he was based in Denmark. So he wasn't a U.S. citizen. He wasn't. The termination did not occur on U.S. soil. So, to the extent that he did have some sort of employment claim, it would be based in Denmark, and we don't have a lot of information about that. So. He's terminated. He ends up telling his sister or sister-in-law what has happened, and she encourages him to contact the Department of Justice. So he then made a report to the Department of Justice and then sought out independent counsel to file this relator complaint. It was in 2011. It was actually May of 2011. He filed in the Western District of New York, and it impacted the system that Cisco was using, impacted LAX airport, the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, the New York transit system. So we're talking about major subway systems and train systems in the state of New York. And then we heard, obviously, nothing about it until 2019. So we're getting a lot of information. At the very end of the case, you hear the big number, oh, they've settled for $8.6 million. Mr. Glenn, for his efforts, received about $1.72 million as a relator fee. So there's some incentive, obviously, for insider threats or whistleblowers to either unfortunately create these problems or to report them. Unfortunately, in this circumstance, this could just do anything about it. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like this is exactly, like I said before, this is like the prototypical case for why we have the False Claims Act, too, that right. it provided this private person and maybe beyond submitting a complaint to the DOJ, which who knows what would have happened there, maybe he would not have done anything with it if it weren't for this private right and potential right. for financial compensation as a result of it. 
So is that one of the reasons why we think this case is so significant? Is it because it's one of the, it's the first one that we have a settlement for? Why do you guys think this case is so significant? If I can jump in, I think it's significant because for a number of reasons. But the first one is because it gives sort of encouragement to other potential whistleblowers. I know this sounds odd, but I was watching TV at two o'clock in the morning the other night on, you know, it's a holiday weekend. And I saw an advertisement for Cybersecurity False Claims Act lawyers, and they were encouraging oh, people to contact them, essentially whistleblow on their co- the company they work for, and they were promised this sort of amorphous, vague, huge payday. I mean, I think that, bizarrely, the commercial even said something like, you've put in tough hours, but you're not being paid well. This is the way for you to to make millions. So, are are you and Dave lobbying for us to put a billboard up with your faces <laughs> on it? Or we mean to talk to you about some budget uh, right. uh, yeah. after this? Right. Well, actually. that doesn't surprise me at all, though. If you want to say like the vultures are circling a bit because so many companies are have maybe one eye on the cybersecurity requirements, and in fairness to them. Even with two eyes on it, the requirements are constantly changing and evolving. Dave, we've talked about CMMC, which is maybe going to come online next year. That's the latest and greatest, but there's been sort of an evolution over the last several years. So it almost feels like shooting fish in a barrel if you're going to start going after firms for not being compliant with your cybersecurity requirements with a potential two million bucks at the other end of the rainbow, right? Yeah, and I think I, I draw some some parallels to what's been happening in Illinois over the past about five years or so. You know, they had a, a biometric privacy act that has been in place for a long time. But about five years ago, they started actually plaintiff's lawyers started taking a more interest in this. They started realizing that a lot of employers were not complying with it. And all of a sudden, over the past five years, they get about two or three of these cases for violations of the BPA a day. I mean, it is just a whole cottage industry. And you start to feel that snowball effect really taking place where you've got your Aerojet case. That's opening the door a little bit. You've got a Cisco case. That's opening the door a little bit more. And you start to see kind of what we saw years ago in Illinois, where they people are starting to take a really active interest in this. And again, not just employees, but to your point, attorneys who are, who are looking to help facilitate that and we're looking for their own particular payday. So you start to see some of these parallels and a lot of these, these movements go in trends. And, and I think we're just at the early stages. So what do I see when I look at the Cisco case? What I see is potentially the door opening. You know, Matt did a great blog on I have the floodgates open. I don't know if the floodgate per se is open, but I would say that it started to crack a little bit and that I would, again, would not be surprised to see a lot more of this and to look back in particular and see that this was filed in 2011 means that there's a lot out there that could be occurring right now that we just don't know about. And once and if those cases settle or they become public, and we've got more indicia that somebody can make money off of this. I really do think that we're going to see a lot more of it. And I think honestly that, you know, in, in Cisco settlement statement, you know, they, they said it, I think best, you know, they said, quote, what seemed reasonable at one point no longer meets the needs of our stakeholders today. And I think that quote 
is really interesting in the sense that a lot of these standards, the NIST standards, these these contractual requirements, your DFAR, your FAR, your your industry standards, those types of things are all somewhat malleable. They're all meant to to be all things to all people, and so they're not really that black and white. But it's all based on this general concept of reasonableness. Are you reasonably certifying that you have reasonable protections? You you know we attorneys use reasonable all the time, and what they're saying is what was reasonable perhaps in their mind in 2011 is no longer reasonable today. And so we have clients that when they start a contract, they make a certification. And at that time when they make the initial certification, that's reasonable. They are reasonably in compliance. But as the landscape changes and the requirements evolve and everything is constantly in a fluid motion, by the time they submit their last invoice, they might not be in reasonable compliance anymore. So this isn't something that we put in place, we fire and forget, and we just move on and we'll figure it out next time when we have another contract that we have to bid on. It's really something, you know, John, you and I talk about a lot with our cybersecurity compliance program that we offer about setting up, you know, your system security plans, setting up your information security policies and procedures, doing quarterly reviews, doing monthly check-ins, doing your patches. This is very much a, you know, you have to maintain this. And so the Cisco case looks to me like they failed to just keep up with the times. They didn't think they had to. They thought they were fine. But now upon reflection, somebody dropped the ball. We didn't do our quarterly check-ins. We didn't take this complaint seriously. We didn't think that cybersecurity was a big deal. And now it snuck up on us and we've got to pay $8.6 million because of it. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like an internal failing on their part. They had this system, apparently, Matt, for reporting of issues. So that's a good step. But it's a step that ends up being not that helpful if you don't take seriously what's reported, right? Right. Well, so this is, you know, exhibit A to what to do. When an internal report comes in, that person, in this case, Mr. Glenn, did what he was supposed to do. He gave you the information. And ultimately, I find it extremely hard to believe that there would have been any case at all if Cisco had responded to that report and issued a patch. Cisco did eventually issue a patch and then notified the government, but that was in 2014, I believe. And so this product was on the market for years without the government or any of its presumably private clients that would have used this knowing about this vulnerability. And if they had just listened to their employee who was giving them good information, they probably would have, one, avoided the False Claims Act issue altogether because they would have made the report to the government. And no, the government could have taken steps at that time to mitigate any vulnerability. But it sort of gave them an opportunity to cause their own problems because they didn't look for a solution. They didn't look to sort of mitigate this issue on their own side by saying, we have this problem. We have new cybersecurity requirements. We're implementing a new process. Our system worked, which would have been a lot better publicity than Cisco settles $8.6 million false claims act case. Right. I mean, we, we have an audits and investigations team here, too, that I know works a lot with the false claims act. I mean, they're kind of like a joint 
group. And I, I think you would say standard operating procedure is, and to Dave's point on reasonableness, the steps you take in vetting a whistleblower complaint or just an issue you discover inside your company. I mean, a lot of our clients being smaller businesses maybe are less susceptible to this prototypical whistleblower, but stuff's going to happen, right. you know, for any company, no matter how big issues with employees or just, you know, you leave a sensitive document on the hood of the car and drive off or, you know, you figuratively leave sensitive information on the hood of your computer system and someone gets in. I mean, thing, things are going to happen and it, there's only so much you can do to prevent a breach, right? Or a mistake. It's what you do next that's so important in the audit and investigative part of this. The response part, to like to Matt's point, goes a long way towards eliminating the potential exposure under the False Claims Act, right? Right. And I think one of the things that, you know, we haven't touched on a, that much, but, you know, Mr. Glenn did not work for Cisco. You know, there, we, we talk a lot, especially in the M&A context, about risk allocation. And, and there are and businesses have acceptable risk and unacceptable risk. And, and it may very well be that this was an acceptable risk. They didn't think it was going to happen. It's a business decision. But, you know, we have a big headline. Cisco pays $8.6 million. But I bet in their subcontract, they've got an indemnification claim against that small subcontractor that's now – likely out of business. This could put them out of business. I mean, we're talking, yes, the headline again, Cisco has to pay this money and maybe, and they will pay the money, but they're going to institute a legal proceeding to be made whole against that subcontractor. So, you know, we have a lot of clients who are thinking, well, I don't make the rep. I don't make the certification to the government. I'm insulated in some respects, but that's simply not the case with regards to items are flowing down, indemnification provisions are being inserted into subcontracts. I mean, the liability and the risk is going to be allocated downward to the subcontractor. So wherever you are kind of in, I mean, we're really talking about a supply chain vendor management risk allocation here. Wherever you are in that ecosystem, it's important to understand what your risk is. Because again, Cisco might not really be too concerned about this financial hit especially if they think that they can get it back from the sub. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's, you know, Cisco's obviously a large business. That's a big dollar amount. It's a big program. It sounds like many of our clients are working on smaller programs, but it doesn't mean that the playbook, the ideal playbook that should have been utilized here doesn't apply the same way to the smaller contractor to mitigate the risk. Right, Matt? And is that one of your key takeaways? Absolutely. And and honestly, False Claims Act liability can flow both ways. So if a subcontractor makes a false claim and the prime submits it to the government on behalf of that subcontractor, the prime is just as liable for that false claim as the subcontractor is in the same way that in this case, Cisco turns out to be the defendant in a, in a relator's False Claims Act case and can pass that on to the subcontractor. So False Claims Act liability and the importance of meeting your obligations is important no matter where you are in that supply chain. And of course, we're talking about cybersecurity today, but the False Claims Act impacts every branch of government and every industry, every agency. And so whether you're working in construction or healthcare or cybersecurity or cybersecurity issue, that's a big takeaway mm -hmm. that this can hit any area. You know, you're not immune because you're a subcontractor. You're not Im immune because you're a small business. You need to meet your obligations no matter where you are on the pathway to in government mm -hmm. contracting. Yeah, that's a great point. And I'll, I'll just 
add to it that what I see on the other side of the flow down a fair amount is that the smaller firms farther down in the supply chain may be taking on more risk than they need to. That now I think the larger firms, and this is already happening, but I'm sure now there've been board meetings and the Office of General Counsel within these larger firms, and they're shifting the risk down, as Dave said. So what that might mean for you as a subcontractor in their ecosystem is that you're being asked to accept responsibility for things that you may not be required to take responsibility for, maybe you shouldn't, or at least you're going to have to think harder about whether to take that project given what you're being asked to take on. So I think you want to make sure you're looking at it 360 degrees and that that you're not being asked to take on more responsibility than you need to because it could have really significant ramifications when something like this Cisco case happens. This is definitely a reason to send your subcontracts to your lawyer. You know, knowing exactly what you're signing up for at the beginning of performance is critical for a small business, particularly when it comes to these indemnification provisions and false claims act liability in particular because in addition to a, there's a, a monetary penalty, an automatic monetary penalty of either eleven, about 11000 or about 22000 depending on the circumstances. But then any actual damages suffered by the government can be a tripled. So a subcontractor whose subcontract may only be worth a million dollars could be on the hook down the road for over $3 million in liability if ultimately the entire contract is subject to the False Claims Act. And so most small businesses I know perhaps wouldn't even know that that's the potential for what's what they're facing in the yeah. event of a false claim sector. And I, I mean, I think we, we tell people to get a good form of a subcontract, a teaming agreement, a non-disclosure agreement, your employment agreement. I mean, there's a suite of documents that as a contractor, you want to have a good form. And then it really shouldn't be a significant undertaking to ask Dave or somebody else in the corporate group or on the cyber team, give this a quick review because I have an acute cybersecurity-related concern on this project. We don't need to rebuild the entire subcontract, but I need an hour or so of targeted guidance to make sure that we're not taking on more liability than we can stomach or that we or that we are required to take on for this particular project, right, Dave? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And, and I think even if you're an entity that says, frankly, whatever the prime gives me, I'm going to have to sign. My bargaining position is such that I, I really just don't have any wiggle room. It's still important to understand the liability that you're taking on so that you can plan for it from a business perspective. You look at it, you can try to quantify it, maybe you can find some additional insurance to, to be able to mitigate it. You plan for it, increase your reserves, hire your own information technology professional to, to double check it. I mean, yes, sometimes you're in a position where the subcontract is what it is, and you're going to have to sign it because you need the work and you want the work. It's just your foot in the door. Whatever rationale you have, that's fine. But you need to understand what you're getting yourself into so that you can mitigate it. Because what you don't want is, like Matt said, you've got a $1 million contract, but now you owe $3 million. And perhaps you could have mitigated it had you thought earlier about mitigate, that. Mitigate, that's a great point. And I was thinking of cyber insurance as you were talking. And in fact, I think some of the largest primes have already started to insist on subcontractors having cyber insurance. I suspect that the Cisco case is only going to accelerate that further through the industry that, you know, if you want to be part of our supply chain, 
you have to pass muster on some basics. And I think there are some larger primes that have internal certification processes that you have to go through or demonstrate. You have cyber insurance. I mean, things like that so that you don't end up like the subcontractor in this case where you have a potential vulnerability. I think it's also important to pay attention to your employees. The best way to mitigate your risk is to make sure that you have robust internal controls and that you're listening to the people who are, who are the boots on the ground. So it's really easy to sort of write off someone's report as being the product of a bad day at the office, or maybe they have a volatile relationship with another person in the cube next door. And so you say that person complains all the time. I'm not going to take this seriously. But if you don't take that seriously, you could be missing something really important that in this case could have resulted in what the difference between zero dollars and liability and 8.6 million. Absolutely. I think I'm just going to come back to reasonableness. I totally agree. If they had taken some reasonable steps to vet this through, we probably wouldn't be talking about this. And Dave would have been off the hook for another podcast. We would have found another way to drag you back in. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Mr. Glenn. Well, Matt, Dave, really appreciate it. That was great. Thanks, John. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Polera Mazza production, and the music credits go to bensound.com. I've been your host, John Williams. Next time on X-Rail Radio, we'll be talking to Michelle Lidekin, counsel in our government contracts group, about how the False Claims Act affects companies in the healthcare industry, potential risks they face, and strategies for avoiding an FCA claim. Please subscribe to hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.